This episode of Adventure Rider Radio Raw was recorded in front of a live audience at the Can West Hub Meet in Nacusp, British Columbia for 2016. So, um, yeah, we're doing this live recording. I mean, it's recording, but obviously it's live in front of you guys. And um, and when we do it, it doesn't work flawlessly. I mean, if, you, if you've ever listened to ARR Raw, you might listen to it and think, well, it sounds pretty smooth. I mean, pretty smooth. We've, we've got Graham Field in here, of course, who stirs things up. But it's... it's blanks for the technical errors going on right now. <laughs> so the problem is a lot of times the technical aspects of it, Skype, although it's amazing that brings us from, you know, people from around the world together, it can be a real pain in the ass. So that's what we're running into now. But it's all working. So we're almost ready to go here. Just before we get fired up here, Graham, Sam, Shirley and Brian, you're all here. You're fine, right? We are. Uh, we're here. Yeah, yeah, we're all good. Good, okay, we're all here. We're about ready to go. From the Canoe West Media Studio in the Cusp, British Columbia, Canada, at the Can West Hub Meet, it's August 2016, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. I'm Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I say that tongue-in-cheek, we have Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks in one location. Shirley, Brian, good morning. Good morning. Hi, how you going, guys? So, Shirley, you sound so much different now. I mean, everyone's sitting here in front of us is listening to you. So, what's your morning going like? <laughs> Go, Shirley. Well, it's very early. <laughs> it's, that's, um, not, that that not changed so much. You were whining a minute ago. <laughs> whining? Let me tell you about whining. <laughs> so, hey, hey, Jim, you know, to get a connection here, I've driven 740 kilometers yesterday to get a reasonable signal in the outback of Australia. So, we're in Cooper Pedy where most people people live underground because in the summertime it hits 50 degrees centigrade out here. And can I point out, most people are asleep. Oh, when you know this. And here I thought you guys went really out of your way for this. I'm glad it was easy for you. So, <laughs> so the next we have Sam Manicom. Sam, who is in... Where are you, Sam? Oh, hello, everybody. Um, I'm actually at um, another overlanding event. I'm at the Overland Magazine event um, near the, the famous university city of Oxford, uh, it's a beautiful site, and I've spent the day surrounded, as you guys are, by people who are just bitten by the overlanding buck. But plus, I've had the pleasure of being surrounded by some um, authoring overland legends. Now, just listen to this. There's been Dylan Wickrama, um, Chris Scott, Shaq Lucasen, Spence Conway, Richard Lesseur, Duncan Goff, um, Derek Mansfield, Bob Goddard, Ted Simon, Lois Price, Austin Vince, Jeremy Craker, Craig Carey Clinch, and it's just been a complete buzz here today. So it, you know, talking with you guys is rounding my day off with a huge smile. Very cool. We also have Graham Field. And Graham, where are you? Uh, I'm in Bulgaria. And I've also made a huge sacrifice for the show. I, this evening, just went to the opening of a new restaurant. And it was free beer. Not the first round, but the entire <laughs> evening. Oh, the entire evening was free beer. And I was a designated driver staying stone cold sober for this show. So I'm just passed out. Well, we definitely owe you. Clearly, you have worked the hardest for this show. There's no doubt. Hands down, Graham. I, I feel for you. I really do. I don't know what to say. Uh, I appreciate your sympathy, Jim. I'm glad you understand. We'll buy you a beer, Graham. 
Speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> sitting here beside me at the Can West event is Grant Johnson. Grant? Hello, everybody out there. We're at the Can West event, as Jim said, having a good time. We've got lots of people here. We've been doing, we've had three busy days. It's been flat out with the presentations and seminars and writing challenges and all kinds of good stuff to keep people going. I've had lots of people say, I'm, I'm heading off, I'm leaving, I'm going. Fantastic. That's what it's all about. And Grant, I have to say, it's pretty cool to be sitting in the same spot. Yeah, finally, for the first time. You know, this is the first time we've ever done this, been in the, uh, recording in the same room. Okay, so was... our first topic, we're going to wait, wait. Sam will come back in. We'll just have to find him. Um, we're talking about uh, trains and ferries, what's involved, tie down, blocks under the bike, etc. your methods. We're talking about pitfalls to be aware of, security, should you stay with your bike, and are some countries worse than others? And... Um, Graham, you've just recently taken a ferry, haven't you? Uh, oh, only a little one, uh, but across the Danube between uh, Romania and Bulgaria, yes. Right. So, anyway, I think everybody has uh, been on a ferry at one point or another. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. We've done that. <laughs> Many ferries. Why don't we start with the, the stories? Actually, I wish Sam was here because Sam sent some photographs of some bikes that have been tied up and fallen over anyway. But... Um, well, maybe, maybe I'll kick it off. Um, one of our first ferry rides uh, was leaving um, Athens uh, port, going out to Crete. And um, uh, we, we rode onto, onto the ferry. We were escorted by a friend down to the ferry terminal because it's pretty bloody hard to find it if you haven't got GPS or a map. And uh, when, we, when we went onto the ferry, um, the sailors uh, offered to tie the bike you know, with hay bale, you know those hay bale things you used to have, tie up hay, hay, Binder uh, twine? hay bales with. What they did yeah. is they uh, they tied it up to the the overhead pipes that run um, on the ferry uh, carrying water and waste and all that sort of stuff. And that's how the bike stayed on its centre stand, crashing through the uh, the sea to get out to creek. And every time the bike the the ship shuddered, I was thinking the bike was going to fall over, but no, it was fine. But hay bale, that was the best we had. Graham, <laughs> I would like to take the ferry across the Danube from Baltimore. Oh, yeah, that, that would be great. That, right? was, that sounds like a very romantic ferry ride. Oh, it's really not. <laughs> Maybe I painted a pretty picture. It's, a, it's not even a – it's like a floating metal platform and it gets towed along the side of the quay because – and trucks just drive – down it and they move the ferry along so that a truck drives across the ferry and it's only a, it's only 40 foot wide so one truck goes on they move the ferry another truck goes on and you just stand on this metal platform as it drifts across the danube to the romanian <laughs> side and uh, yeah there is no romance there is no food there is no water there are no tie downs you sit there in the blazing sun with a little bulgarian flag flapping, taking a few photographs because you're crossing the Danube and you're moving countries, and that is really the extent of the romance. It's and it takes about <laughs> it takes about twenty minutes. I mean, and there's no cabin, so forget trying to have a shag across the way yeah. or anything. <laughs> Why do you well, always we, make we it so we have stuff to remove? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we did another one. We crossed the river where um, we were in turkey i think and uh i had to balance the bike on the ramp the ferry was that bloody full i was backwards on the ramp with water washing up through my feet 
as uh, the, the things go. And Cheryl was, was absolutely shitting herself. She's standing there watching me. Don't drop it. Don't drop it. Uh, that was one. And then there was the one crossing in uh, Bolivia, Shirley. Remember that? Going to Lake Titicaca. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was um, logs of wood strapped together, and um, it, but with big gaps in between them. So and you sort of had to watch where you put your feet and where you put your tyres. And then uh, it, was, it was run by about a 15-horsepower little buddy outboard motor. That with a bus a, on it as well. Yeah, the bus. Unreal. The bus was sort of weighing it down at the front. <laughs> it was very scary. What a fun, what a fun crossing ferries. <laughs> hey, Graeme, you had a good one too, didn't you, mate? Oh, I was just saying there was um, one of the most depressing ones, actually, was crossing from Ukraine to Russia. And uh, not a particularly big ferry. And you down into the depths of it, and there was nothing to tie the bike down with. And it was so unstable. And I thought, it wasn't a long crossing. It was about 45 minutes an hour. And I thought, I'm going to have to, I'm just going to have to stay down here and hold it. Really, I wanted to be up on the little deck watching Russia appear. The first time I'd ever been to Russia, it was super exciting. But instead, I was down this stinking, noisy, filthy deck where I couldn't see anything. But I did have phone reception. So I was texting a couple of friends because I was really nervous about, I was about to be going to Russia and everything. And uh, I, and so I sent a few texts. And eventually we got to the port on the other side. And as we got there, the, the ferry hit something and everything shuddered. And I held my bike and it stood up. And if I hadn't have been there, it would have been down. So thank God I decided to stay in the pits of this ferry and, and, and keep yeah. the bike there. It was, a, it was good judgment. <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the ferries won't let you stay in the on the um, the yeah, deck. Yeah, they won't no. let you stay there. Yeah, but I've got another good story of a friend of ours. We 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 were just crossing uh, the heads at Port Phillip Bay. You know, we've been for a nice ride down the Great Ocean Road, an iconic ride with a few mates, and we're coming back and we're going to cross the ferry and ride up the other side of the bay. And he had a brand new Veradero uh, Honda, and uh, it's a little bit choppy across there. And we've all wandered up to the top deck, and we've got a cup of coffee, and we're sitting there looking at the beautiful view and overlooking the the, uh, the deck where the the bike is. And if you know the Honda Veraderos, their their side stand doesn't really go over a lot. And I'm watching his bike getting washed up and up and up. And I'm, I said to him, "Hey, Nobby, I think your bike's going to fall over." And as we were walking down the stairs, it fell over onto a brand-new Mercedes. Oh. <laughs> it smashed the lights on the Mercedes. Oh, oh God. <laughs> so there you go. That's just a small ferry crossing across the heads at Port Phillip Bay in Melbourne. Let's look at, um, let's look at the bare necessities. So if we're going to give somebody advice from your experience traveling in all these different ferries, what's your advice? What, what's the safest way to do it? I believe in tying it okay. down. Well, uh, <laughs> Taking your own rope, you mean? Yeah, I, I carry BMW tie straps. If you go to your BMW dealer, they've got uh, straps that were used to tie the BMW down in the crate from the factory. And usually they'll give them to you, although I've heard of a few dealers selling them for five bucks, which is a ripoff. But these tie straps are very small and they're very compact. And I always have a couple of them at least really handy. So when I get on a ferry, I just grab them, strap the bike down to whatever's available, and then I'm sure that it's safe, even if they use their own strapping system, which sometimes is good and sometimes is rubbish. But that's the same as almost any strap, right? The BMW straps aren't really special, are they? They're special for motorcycle travelers in that they're very compact and they don't weigh anything, Mm -hmm. and they're indestructible. 
So you can carry half a dozen of those. Oh, I knew that was coming. (laughs) That's exactly what I I think you've seen my bike, Um, Grant, where I've got a a little pouch on the side of my bike with three tie downs, which are BMW tie downs. I just went to the guys and said, can I grab your tie downs? Yeah, no problem. And there's one that goes across the yoke as well. So I've just got that on the bike permanently. In fact, we're in a four-wheel drive now, and I've still got three of them in the car now. And I used one yesterday. Yep, I've got half a dozen of them in the trunk of my car. Berger and I also use, and I also use the, the BMW straps, and, and we have them looped around the outside of our panniers so that they're just there. And um, they're multi-purpose bits of kit, which, of course, we all ought to be carrying, shouldn't we? They act as our washing line and... Um, if it's really stormy weather, then we'll use them as additional guidelines and all that sort of stuff. So they're great bits of kit to have. But yeah. they, yeah, we always take our own, and we prefer to to tie the bikes down for ourselves. Um, and we always park um, our bikes in gear and on the side stands, and um, we strap um, the side stand to the front wheel using one of these BMW straps, so that the side stand always stays out. And um, if the weather's really extreme, you know, we'll, we'll look at the weather forecast when we're coming to do a ferry crossing, particularly if um, the area has a reputation for stormy seas, like heading up to Norway, for example. You know, you can have really smooth weather for, for weeks, and then all of a sudden the North Sea will blow a right hoolie. So we'll look at that sort of stuff. And if the weather forecast is really bad expected, then we're just going to overkill with um, chocks and straps and everything else. But we'll also use a cable tie to um, pull the front brake lever tight against the handlebar. And it's amazing that that much difference. And that's also a good um, couple of tricks to use if you get yourself on a local ferry where there are no places to tie your bike down. If you can do that with your side stand to your front wheel and lock your front handlebar and have your bike parked in gear, it's amazing how steady it'll be. Yeah, that's that's true. I carry those tie downs just in case. Uh, not that uh, BMWs break down, but they do fail to proceed sometimes. Uh, so Sorry, can you define that again? What, what, what was that? They, they don't break down. <laughs> they don't break down. They just fail to proceed, like Rolls Royce. Fail to proceed. They just fail to proceed sometimes. So if you have to chuck it in a truck or something like that, you've got your own tie downs. Very handy. Of course. I don't actually have BMW tie-downs. I have, in fact, motor freight tie-downs. The same people who are supplying Sam with his whiskey right now. Um, but, <laughs> uh, motor freight, uh, loads of uses. Uh, but what I do, I always have the straps around my panniers, so it's like belt and braces kind of thing. Uh, so when I'm riding, it's just there. So if the clips ever give way, the, the straps hold them on. And those, that's a, if you're going to carry them, they might as well be performing some function while they're being carried. And yeah. so yeah. I do have my own tie downs for, for ferries, assuming they've got loops or somewhere for you to actually tie down to. What all the cross-channel ferries have now from, from Europe, from, from UK... I mean, I like to strap a bike down from the front, from the handlebars, so it compresses the front forks. Two straps is all you need. I mean, I've carried them around on pickup trucks like that for 30 years. But now the the, the strapping that you have on the ferries goes across the seat, and I really don't like that. It's compressing it where it shouldn't really be compressed. It's putting weight on the side stand, which is bending it. It's putting unnecessary kink in the seat and whatever's under your seat, batteries or whatever, whatever depending on the on the model of bike you ride and i think people can be have a tendency to over ratchet and uh and do damage really there was 
and this is brilliant because we got these these store, you know, this this uh, topic of what we we're going to talk about. And there was a guy in motor camp just the other day, and he came across on a ferry. He had a little uh, Yamaha 250, ratcheted the hell out of it, pulling down the shock absorber and everything uh, across the seat. And when he went to release it, when he got to the other side, let the pressure off the ratchet strap. And it pinged up so hard, it fell over the other way, the other side from the side scan. <laughs> <laughs> How yeah, ironic yeah, yeah. that the very thing you've used to keep your bike standing upright is the thing that makes it fall over. Yeah. I've had them over ratchet mine on, the, on that UK ferry. Do you know what you said, Graham, about the side stand breaking? That's actually happened to me. Um, I did ratchet the bike down, um, but in, unbeknown to me, underneath the powder coating, I must have developed some sort of crack. And ratcheting it down to the normal um, strength, not over-ratcheting it, because I know my bike, um, I rode off the bike, at, uh, off the ferry at the other end, and went to park the bike on the side stand, and the bike just kept on going. It was one of those moments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Any other tips? Well, I, I, I did have a bit of a smile when uh, Sam, the, the proper English gentleman, used the uh, tie-down strap as a clothesline. There'd be no need for Graham to use that because he goes commando anyway. He doesn't need to wash. <laughs> <laughs> clothesline, like the idea that he used one. <laughs> His tie-downs probably don't do that anyway because, remember, they're not BMW tie-downs. That's right. They're not multi-purpose. Yeah, <laughs> they're just for tying the bike. <laughs> Can you use it as a Jim, thong, one of the maybe? Things that, hang on a minute. Let's change the direction of this conversation. <laughs> Jim, one of the things that Berg and I do we carry surgical gloves because, you know, they're very thin, they're very small, they take up no space. Um, we use them for when we're working on the bike with oil changing and all that sort of stuff. But we always carry a pair of those handy when we're going onto a ferry because um, some ferries want you to use their straps. They're not interested in allowing you to use your own. Um, so you have to be seen to be used their straps, but inevitably their straps are covered in oil and gunk. Well, of course, then you're going to be, um, let's say when you're undoing your bike, when you've arrived at your destination, you're covering your hands in oil. And what are you going to do? You're going to put them inside your nice clean gloves, aren't you? So those surgical gloves work really well. But one of our top tips um, when we're um, traveling by ferry um, is arrive early, because that way you're allowing yourself plenty of time to strap down. And, you know, we meet people that arrive there by the skin of the teeth and they're given about three minutes to, to make sure that their pride and joy is, is really happy for a long crossing. Why do that? Um, get there a couple of hours early and just be sitting there nice and relaxed and calm and you're on there in plenty of time and you can head up um, on the deck, up to your cabin or whatever you're doing, knowing that your bike is happy down there and it's secure. Do they all let you fasten your bikes down yourself? You guys been on ferries before where they won't let you do the tie-downs? Lots of them they won't let you do it. Is that it. right? Yeah, some companies uh, won't let you do yeah. them yourself. Because then the, if you tie it down, then they, they can't uh, be liable. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Uh, the the, the, the uh, company that goes to Tasmania is the same. It won't let you to uh, tie down your own bike. They do it. And I think that's an insurance issue. Yeah, yeah that's what Graham was just saying. You're probably having trouble hearing him. Yeah, but- there was one from... Uh, Okay, I was just going to say there was one from uh, Russia to South Korea, and they've got all these little Koreans in bright orange boiler suits, and they wouldn't even let us take our bikes on the ferry. They wanted to ride our bikes onto their ferry. (laughs) I've just ridden this bike right the way from the UK, as far east as I can get to, to the edge of of Vladivostok. You are not 
getting on my bike, mate. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, we came to a compromise where I freewheeled it down. And uh, they were really lovely and obliging people, but I'm just not going to let someone else ride my bike. And uh, they freewheeled it down the ramp, always freewheeled it down the ramp, and then they ratcheted it under my supervision. And that was the compromise we came to. I don't think they quite understand just how possessive we are about our bikes and how finicky we are. And uh, we're not about to just let someone ride it off into the depths of a ferry where we're never going to see what happens to it. When we had to lodge our bike in Vladivostok, we had to do it the day before the ferry left, so we had no say in oh, yeah, how it went onto the ferry. Yeah, they, they kept it in a compound, but I rode it onto the ferry. Uh, that, that was in September last year, mate, so maybe they've changed a bit. Is that just for security? Right. I, look, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure, but um, I, I'm with, I'm with uh, Sam. Uh, you you want to look after your own bike, and... Uh, you know, I, I've supervised people tying down my bike, uh, even if they won't uh, let you do it yourself. I stand there and watch. Oh, yes, and absolutely. The I like is that uh, we got a ferry to the Isle of Man, um, TT, with a heap of other bikes. And don't you hate the guy that's the one sitting up in a bar, comes back to his Harley late when you've got 300 bikers waiting to get off the island and you can't get off the island because he's at the front of the queue? And everybody's sitting there steaming, waiting for this idiot to get put his bourbon and coke down and get back on his bike. Don't do that. <laughs> Good tip. <laughs> Jim, I was just going to say, one of the weirdest forms of tide down um, I've ever encountered was on the ferry between Egypt and Sudan. Um, the tie downs were um, bundles of straw, uh, baby goats and chickens with their ankles tied together. <laughs> After about 10 minutes, you, could see, you couldn't see the bikes anymore. They weren't going to fall over because this lot were protecting them. <laughs> That's bizarre. We have a mic here for you guys in the audience. If you guys had something to say, you wanted to join in on the conversation, we sort of thought, clearly this is the first time we're doing this, right? So we're just experimenting. And we thought, if you guys have something to add or you want to ask a question or anything, if you just walk up to the mic, I'm going to spot you there, and then we can turn the mic on, and then you can sort of join in on it. So if anybody's into that, by all means, just walk up. Any great stories on uh, ferry crossings? And also, we don't actually believe that anybody's listening, so it would at least prove that there's someone there. <laughs> That's why you wanted the video, right? So you can actually see something was going on. But all you'd be looking at is Grant yeah, and I in a wall. I just think you're in your front room again. <laughs> Fiendishly cunning, these Canadians, eh, Graham? Yeah. <laughs> Sneaky buggers. The next topic is Just Ask, which I think is going to be rather heated here. Uh, and it's in, in a good spot, us sitting here at Can West. A theme that is gaining in popularity, at least in use uh, in, tra- in the travel world, is people boldly asking other people to put them up while they're traveling, either helping out with accommodations, um, supplying a garage, tools, whatever. So the questions are, is it proper moto travel etiquette to do this? And if it is, or if it isn't, what, whatever, does the host get something in the exchange? Or, or what does the host get? Um, what's expected of you as a traveler, if you're asking for someone to give you accommodation or someplace to work on your bike, etc. And also, how do you ask? Are you going to post it on Facebook? Like, what's cool? You know, what, what's socially acceptable, if there is anything right now? How you go about asking? Is it people you know? Do you post it in public? Do you put it on Facebook? Do you put it on forums, etc.? And also, really important for the people who are doing this already, when are you asking too much? 
how do you know when you've worn out your welcome? You know, like what's the signs or, you know, or are there signs that you can count on? And very important, the last little thing of this is in poor countries, locals seem to give all they have. And is it responsible to take from these poor people and then claim we're sort of poor too because we're running on a tight budget and we're basically broke when we really don't have any idea what it's like to live in their income bracket? Or is it a mutual exchange? So I think to start it off, I'm going to hand it over to you, Graham. Oh, I knew you'd bloody do that. What was the first question again? Well, it's no question. It's a conversation. You know how it goes. Did you fall asleep in that time period? Did I talk too long? That's what it was, wasn't it? I'm thinking, my God, he's covering like 15 different subjects here. He's going to come to me. I know he's going to come to me. (laughs) They're not 15 different subjects. I just talk slower. That's all. Um, Right. Proper moto travel etiquette. It is, it, the, yeah, yeah. I've got some uh, quite strong opinions about it. Firstly, I, so. I would only ask, I suppose, in an emergency, and, and, and not to be seen a hypocrite here. When my bike broke down, blew up, seized in Hungary back in February, I was totally stuck. But all I did was I put a photograph on Facebook of a bunch of oil underneath my bike at the side of the highway, left it at a petrol station, got a taxi to a hotel. And that's when I posted it, when I had the Wi-Fi at the hotel, posted the thing, broken down in bikes blown up in Hungary. Went out to get some alcohol, because obviously that's the first thing you do when your bike's just blown up. And <laughs> as I was and as I was walking back to the hotel, my UK phone rang, not my Bulgarian one, my UK phone rang, and it was a friend of mine in Bulgaria who said, Right, we're gonna come in a van, we're gonna pick you up, we'll be about thirty-six hours, don't worry about it. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I haven't done anything yet. I haven't even opened my first can. I haven't even considered what I'm going to do. He said, well, don't worry about it. That wasn't really me asking. That was me just posting something. And my guardian angels, these incredible people came to my rescue. That was spectacular. That was social media at its best for me. But I think, to carry on the, the subject you brought, to just blatantly ask for accommodation I've never done that. Why would you do that? Why would you blatantly just ask for accommodation? I don't understand quite why you would ever do that. Maybe well, I don't, I don't think people somebody. are necessarily asking like one person in, in particular. What they're doing is they post on maybe on a forum. And, and if you think about it, in a lot of ways, it doesn't seem like a bad idea. You know, you're heading into an area, you post on a forum. Hey, anyone, you know, interested in putting me up? You're not really, you know, narrowing someone down in the corridor in the hallway and poking them and saying, hey, buddy, you know, can I stay at your home? Yeah. Oh, okay. I misunderstood that one then. Yeah, I suppose if you if you if you're going through a certain area, I guess that's okay. Um, I was when I was in Kazakhstan. I this is a very long story, but to get, try and get to the point, I ended up staying with a family who didn't speak any English. I didn't speak. Uh, I think they spoke Russian. I didn't speak their language, and um, I ended up staying with them for five days. They took me out every evening for really really nice meals, and the only way we got to speak to each other was through their son, who wasn't present, who was on the telephone, who would translate. And the first time they take me out for a wonderful meal in the evening, left me in their house all day while they were at work, totally trustworthy. And then the next day went out again, and the son had called while we were at the restaurant, and I said to the son when I spoke to the phone, I said, listen, yesterday we did Kazakhstan tradition and they paid. I said, we're do- today we're doing British tradition, I'm going to pay. And I said, can you please uh, relay that to your father? And the phone got passed back and I watched his face as his son told him what I'd, I'd asked him to tell him. And it went from a pleasant smile to an absolute frown. 
and he was outraged. And that was the only thing I did to offend the whole time I was there, was offer to pay my way. I was a guest to be treated just with utter generosity. And it was humbling. And if I didn't have a conscience, it would have been easy. But I couldn't believe the generosity of these people. And the only reason I was there five days, because I was waiting for the sun to get there, who I knew, but the sun was delayed. And that's how come I ended up with in this, not necessarily awkward, but in this situation where I was just given everything and 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 couldn't in the end I bought a bloody great tree um, for them in a pot because they couldn't not accept it because I couldn't get it on my motorbike <laughs> <laughs> but that was incredible generosity don't feel like I outstayed my welcome but only by my own conscience that it just gets so awkward that I couldn't accept anymore you know but that's a bit different, Graham, because you actually know, you knew you had a connection with the family. Well, only vague. I mean, I only met the guy a week before in a northern part of Kazakhstan, but it was a vague, it was a, a vague connection. But but that's how the Kazakhs were. I mean, they they were generous and friendly and hospitable. Where people would get level with us and uh, on the bikes, and you know, where where are you staying? Come and stay with us. It's like, well, no, we, we need to do some laundry. We'll do laundry in our machine, and because uh, despite what Brian says, occasionally I do have to do it. And uh, <laughs> that, that was. That was uh, that was the uh, that was the, the the kind of the way the Kazakhs were. But um, uh, I don't know what what were the other questions, Jim. Anyway, let someone else talk. <laughs> <laughs> I figure you could only handle the one, but that's fine. You did well there, <laughs> Sam. Uh, do you know, I think that there's absolutely nothing wrong with asking for help. You get you, you can make some great new friends, um, and you can gain a huge insight into um, a country and um, how the people in that country live life as well as potentially giving yourself a solution to an issue that you might have. However, I loathe any element um, that says that this sort of thing can be assumed will happen. So an expectation. People do offer help, but pushing for it? Well, no, I, I, I don't understand why people would want to do that. I don't know whether I'm just old school or something, but I don't want to be in debt to strangers and I don't want to take advantage to people. You know, I'm setting out on the roads because I have ambitions to achieve a set of things. But putting other people into a difficult position or, or, or I don't know, making them feel like they have to offer me help on something, if I don't really, really need it, well, why am I doing that? But I don't think travellers should be afraid of asking for help if they need it. Um, most people in this world will offer help if they see you in trouble. You know, Graham mentioned about the culture side of things. In some countries, it's actually offensive, um, really offensive to refuse help when it's offered. And in other cultures, it's the way it is. And some of the most hospitable people that you meet are the people who have almost nothing. Um, but I think... You have to find a way of giving back. And I love Graham's idea of the tree that he couldn't carry away on the back of his motorcycle. I'm, I'm a, a little bit more ordinary than that. And, you know, you find out what people need in places. And if you travel in really remote Africa, for example, and you're going through tiny little villages that don't have um, regular access to, um, to shops and, and that sort of stuff, then when you, go and, when you meet somebody and they say, hey, come and stay at my place, and, and you say yes then have a little gift of things that they can't grow or make for themselves, like salt or soap, that sort of thing. But, you know, there are some cultures, like the Vietnamese culture, where it is absolutely tradition that if somebody gives you something or hosts you, then the expectation 
is that you will give them a gift. And there's nothing wrong with that expectation. It's just the way it is. But then you have to do your little bit of research to find out what sort of things are the right things. You know, um, traditionally in old, old times England, it was quite normal to give somebody a, a packet of hankies at Christmas or, or whatever. But in Vietnam, no, you wouldn't do that. That's awful. Vietnamese people think that blowing our noses into a bit of paper, which we're then going to put in, into our pockets, is absolutely disgusting. So you can really upset some people by doing that. But, you know, when we're staying with people on the way, because we get invitations and it's wonderful, um, we never arrive empty-handed. You're talking about being invited, though, and we're talking about posting. Like, so, I, I mean, I get that. I mean, I think I, I'm on board with you there. I think that if you're getting invited, if you're at a location, you bump into someone and they say, come stay at my place... Yeah, I mean, I, definitely, I think that's great. But what, what I'm curious is how you weigh in on the posting in advance. You're going to, uh, to visit some area and you, you know, post in advance and say, hey, I'm looking for accommodations. Do you know, I guess that that's down to um, the individual and how they want to run their trip. I think that if it's done in the right way and it's done in such a way that it's not taking, it's, um, it's sharing and it's being involved and... Um, it's just not going into an environment with my hand out, give me freebies, be it whatever, then, yeah, why not? Um, but you have to do it with respect and not with a taking attitude. Do you get what I mean? I'm probably yeah. not um, explaining myself very well. Grant, I, you had something to say? Uh, I, I can say quite a bit here, actually. Um, we've been running the HU communities since 2001, and that was originally set up so that travelers could connect with other travelers in other parts of the world. And it was always, I mean, in the beginning, in 2001 time, there weren't that many people on the road. So trying to connect with others to try and just meet somebody local or to get some help was very difficult. And there was no social media. There was no forums to speak of. So it was a real, really big change. There's now 750 communities around the world and those are all founded by somebody who writes me and says, I would like to host travelers. I would like to have any travelers who have any problems or just to meet travelers to contact me. So the communities, you can go to the community page, you can write an email to 750 communities around the world in I think it's 110 countries now and say, hey, I'm coming through your town. I'd like to meet you. Let's go for a beer. Maybe let's go for a ride. Maybe you could show me some, some of the interesting places to see. And the, the number of people that use that is significant. There's a lot of them doing it. And at the end of it, I've had a lot of people write to me after their trip and say, you know, the best part of the whole trip was the people we met through the communities. The people in the communities and all around the world, they want to meet travelers. So the, the payment for, that the traveler is giving for support, help, accommodation, whatever is offered is their stories to them, to the uh, people in the local area. And if you think you're coming from, say, North America or Europe, and you're going to a little tiny country in a little tiny town in South America, you are the biggest and coolest thing that's come through town in years. They're very interested in you. The whole town comes out to meet you. I remember stories of people coming up saying, yeah, the, the local TV crew came because I was there, and they wanted to interview me and talk to me. And that's fantastic. You get to meet people in all these small, strange countries. And that, that connection is an amazing thing, to actually meet local people. Because it's very easy to travel and not meet anybody. You, you may talk to the gas station attendant. You may talk to somebody in a restaurant to order food. 
but you don't meet people. And connecting with the people in the communities is absolutely amazing because they're motorcycle travelers or four-wheel drive travelers, but they're interested in travel. They've put their hand up and said, I want to meet foreigners. Fantastic. How good a connection can you have? Uh, the number of stories, I mean, I could go on for hours telling you stories about people that have met people through the communities, and it's fantastic. And sometimes the, somebody in the community ends up going traveling themselves. Somebody from South America goes traveling to Europe, and they meet somebody that uh, is in a community there. What an exchange of, of uh, interest. It's fantastic. Just before we, um, I was going to get Brian and, and Shirley to weigh in on this. I was going to say, does anybody in the audience have anything to, to add to this? Any, any sort of opinions about travel and, and uh, posting stuff and looking for accommodations? No? If you do, let us know. Step would, up. would you ask? There is no audience, is there, Jim? <laughs> Put your hand up. Would sure, you ask? I couldn't hear anything that Grant said, but um, was he by any chance talking about communities and things like that? Because I hope he was. I, I didn't hear yes. anything that Yes, Grant that's said. what he was, yeah. Yes, he was. He yeah. was. Yeah. I was going to mention that um, because I think that when there's an environment that's set up, and this is one of the beautiful things about the Horizons communities, um, people um, have volunteered the services and they're open to it, and that's absolutely awesome because it is incredibly hard in some countries to get beneath the skin of a place. But when you've got something like that community and they've, they've opened their arms and they're, they're inviting, then you know, to receive a message from a traveler and saying, hey, look, I'm heading your way. Can I come and stay? Hey, that's absolutely awesome. That's fantastic. Communities are great. And I've probably just said exactly what Grant said, so I'm sorry, but I didn't hear any of it. And Shirley and Brian? Uh, look, I think if you do it through HU, I think that's a really good thing through a set-up community. Um, I just don't think travellers should be going around asking slash begging for free accommodation, free mechanical repairs. You know, if you're going to do your trip, make sure you can afford to do it without having to... to um, to go begging for things, but certainly to meet people who are willing to host um, travellers is a fantastic thing. But always remember, visitors are like at a bucket of prawns in the sun, couple of days. <laughs> and- you use them my line, Shirley. You use them my line. We discussed this. We discussed this. Did she steal your thunder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she stole my thunder, you know. I said to her, today, it's like a bucket of prawns, you know. Um, after two days, uh, visitors go off sometimes if they're not. And look, we've, we've hosted people in our house, and we actually witnessed a divorce in our house, didn't we, Shirley? Remember that? Uh, yeah, that was yeah. pretty embarrassing. <laughs> in the end, we had to ask them to leave because it was just so uh, uh, difficult and uncomfortable because they couldn't speak to each other without shouting and being nasty. And everyone else is having a good time with in the end was please go elsewhere and have your divorce not here i don't understand how people can do that to other people what that's appalling i know and look we've um we've experienced the the highs and lows of that sort of thing and i think it all comes down to attitude you know we've put up we've, we've met some great people every time we go to germany bert and heidi want us to come and stay with them every time they come to australia they stay with us um, you know, people in England, people in New Zealand. You know, we've got people everywhere because of the communities. But, um, you know, the assistance side of it is fantastic. On our last journey, I needed some parts for a bike. I contacted a guy in Denmark. 
yes, yes, I can get these parts for you. And he says, it's at my house. I pull up at his house and he said, now you and your wife are staying here. You are staying two days. And it's just so generous. But I'm with, I'm with Graham and Sam. You must always be able to provide something back. And even when we were rescued by them, we got to Iron Angels in Russia, you know, in the middle of nowhere. They're so dirt poor, they have nothing. But uh, we made sure we left enough money to certainly cover the food that they gave us, uh, the three litres of beer that I had to drink with them, all that sort of stuff, you know. It's, uh, it's all about human interrelationships, I think, more than wanting and asking. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. No, totally agree no, with you. I think, I think, you know, back in the days when I was a backpacker, there's almost this reverse snobbery amongst some sort of backpackers about how much of a budget you can do it on and, you know, and like just the hardships you can endure and make it almost miserable just so that you can brag to your fellow backpackers mm. the little money you've managed to travel on. And I think that may have crossed over to some aspects of the motorcycling community. There was... There was a girl came through recently through motor camp and she was traveling alone and she stayed at motor camp and she wanted to camp and they're not strictly allowed to have people camp but they relented for a day and then she decided she was going to go on wild camp but every morning she'd come to motor camp use their hot showers use their wi-fi use their facilities stay there all day and then go off on wild camp again she had enough money to be able to rent a motorbike to be able to go off she was on a motorbike but she rented another motorbike to go off and do some off-road stuff on it and it, and that was just absolutely taking advantage of people i said to my cat why didn't you just tell her to leave well you know she's a girl and she's on her own but she was really playing it and she, and i just think that just leaves a bad taste when people take advantage like that and that can tend to tarnish us all if if those people just go along, go on their world trip, taking, 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 and giving nothing back. Yeah, I, I can't help but agree with you, Graham. I see the same thing a lot of times. Uh, some of the emails I see going to the community is people basically begging for accommodation and all kinds of things, and they, they want, 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 and they're expecting it for free because people are offering support. But they're offering connection more than support. If you need support, if you have a problem, they're more than happy to help. But saying, hey, give me free accommodation for a week, that's just not on. If you can't afford to pay your own way, you shouldn't be traveling. You should be back home working. I agree, exactly. Grant. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And there's another little story, which I'm not sure whether it's true or not, and some of you guys might be able to help me out, but um, traveling through Muslim countries, you always get the offer of people wanting you to come and stay at their house. Now, my understanding is that Muslims will have you in your house for three or four days and uh, they make flatbread and they have their, their home brand um, step like a, uh, on their bread that they make at home. Now, you know if you've overstayed your welcome, if when the flatbread arrives in the morning, it hasn't got the, the home stamp on it. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's usually after three days. It's the same as my bucket of prawn story that Shirley stole. <laughs> that seems like a really good method you have there, that, you know, as long as prawns last. What are you going to point? Oh, sorry. We, I, I'm not paying attention here. We, we have somebody in the audience here. So let me just, not that we have somebody in the audience, Graham. <laughs> we have at least one. <laughs> we have a question. So just, just go right up to the mic. Straight. Just, just walk right and, and talk. Just make sure we can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Now, I don't think these guys on the internet can hear you, but I'm, I'm going to give it to them. Go ahead. Okay. This is to prove that they do have an audience. <laughs> 
He's proving that we have an audience. I don't know if that really does anything, but okay, good. I just wanted to say from um, on, the other me, end of it. Tell me what this guy's name is so I can check him out on Facebook. Okay, okay hang on. What's your name? <laughs> My name's Lee. I'm the only oh, Lee on Facebook. I just want to say from the other end of it, I've had uh, numerous travelers stop at my house and the stories and everything are great, but I did have one um, fellow from Europe and he wasn't interested in meeting us, seeing us. All he wanted was Wi-Fi and a bed. And it was really quite rude. And I just thought as travelers, I think we, we owe them our stories like like you said. Absolutely. Really good point. Yeah, the story exchange is huge. And I think that's uh, one, of the, one of the big reasons that people want to host because they want to hear about other countries, other people, other stories, other places that are interesting. And, and that's the exchange is your stories is what they want to hear. You got to have something. I mean, you can't just use people's stuff. I mean, no one wants someone to come, some stranger to come and stay in their house, use their Wi-Fi or their shop or whatever, and sort of not get something out of it. I mean, I know that's not why people host necessarily. They don't just do it. They may want to help, but you certainly want to get something from it. You don't just want to be a, a facility. I had someone stay with me recently, and she was Facebook messaging me from her bedroom to see what, it's, like, it's so nice to have a house guest and not spend my time on Facebook. She's bloody messaging me from the bedroom upstairs. Could you not come downstairs? But, but kids <laughs> do that to their parents all the time. That's really common, Graham. Everybody does that. You yes, see a group of people. This was a kid. This was a traveler. <laughs> this was a teenage girl. But you see a group wow. of friends sitting around, especially young kids, sitting around in a circle, and they'll be texting each other. All of a sudden, one will look up and go, yeah, I know what you mean, you know, and everybody chuckles because they're all in on it. Nobody's talking. I think maybe you're just behind the times. Oh, my God. I have to tell the school, what is this Facebook you talk of? <laughs> I think that a lot of times people that are offering hosting don't think that they're wanting anything back, but it's only fair and it's only sociable and, and reasonable to do that, to give something back. They're not necessarily asking for anything, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't give them something either. But from what you're saying, Grant, a lot of people um, who host just want to meet other travellers, um, experience the stories, sit around over a wine and, and have a yarn after dinner. Um, but they don't expect the people that are coming to stay with them to retreat to their room, use their Wi-Fi, demand the laundry, and then shove off the next day or the day after. It's, it's about meeting the people, not just using their facilities. Absolutely. I think the most important thing is, and, and as travellers, why are you travelling? Do you just want to go and bag North Pole or whatever? Do you, or do you actually want to meet the people or, that are along the way? I mean, I found a lot of travelers have said to me that they went off to see the sites and halfway through the trip they realized the trip is about the people they meet along the way. Those connections you make can be lifelong friends and they change your perception and your understanding of the world around you. It's not just about the sites or the road. The riding along the road isn't everything. You know, there are a couple of sayings that I really like, and I think um, a lot of overlanders um, enjoy these sayings. And one of them is, um, leave only footprints. Well, of course, in our case, that's more often leave only tire tread. Um, but also try and leave each place that you've been a little bit better. So for the next person that comes along, the experience is even happier still. When it comes to time, do we sort of agree on the, the fact that it's like the bucket of prawns? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the bucket of prawns. Definitely. 
So two days, two days, that's it. Well, three days. Not two or three days. Yeah, three days. Prawns stay for three days? You don't want to eat prawns after three days in the hot sun. Not especially not (laughs) in Oz. Okay, that's true. (laughs) Two days in the house and one day in the dustbin. (laughs) Yeah. That I think, uh, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, it was really relevant. Oh, it's gone now. Um, <laughs> oh, also, the other thing is, it's actually, if you're a conscientious guest, it's an exa- as exhausting being a guest as it is being a host because you're on your best behavior and you are trying to think of everything, look at how the house is, look at how things are, the washing up. And it can be just as exhausting for the guest as it can be for the host. And perhaps after two or three days, you're ready to leave anyway, just so you can have a hotel and trash the place. <laughs> Not all of us trash the place. <laughs> Hanging around with too many rock stars. So the, the, I, I, another question I don't think we really covered here was, when are you asking too much? When is, you know, I mean, so you come and you use a bed, you know, using the Wi-Fi, maybe the laundry, Shirley mentioned well, what, how do you know you're using too much? And I realize that everybody's going to have different um, levels on this, right? I mean, somebody who hosts may say, hey, come use everything. Um, other people may think, well, I'm just giving them a bed. I'm certainly not paying for their food. I think when they do an oil change and use your oil, that's something that really pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's the defining factor for you is, is if they reach for your yeah, oil. Yeah, bring, bring your own oil if you come to my house. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember that. I think it comes down to personal relationships, you know. You can gauge, if you know people, you can gauge when they're getting a little bit pissed off or angry or not happy with you. And um, uh, Unless you're the Germans having you d- divorce oh, in yeah, our bedroom. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they couldn't gauge it at all. No, no, they couldn't work it out. Yeah. You don't want to get it to the point where you're actually pissing people off. I think you want to make sure that you don't get to the point where you're starting to annoy your host. You should be a good guest and they should be happy and they should be sorry to see you leave. Yeah, I agree. You, but you, I don't know, how long do you need to stay in one place? I mean, presuming if you're staying with, with a, a local person, you're out in the suburbs, it's not like you're in the heart of the city and where there's heaps of museums and things you want to visit. You just want to hang out with some locals for a few days. You don't want to overstay, you're welcome. Look, look I'm, I'm happy to help out anybody. You know, if they've got a mechanical problem, I've got heaps of mechanics, you know, I can show them around. I've got heaps of rides I can take them on. And it's about experiencing your little part of the world and showing them your little part of the world. That's what I get out of um, having people stay. Um, but sometimes, as you know, as our experience has shown, you know, um, some people just aren't receptive to that and some people you get on with and some you don't. But that's life. But I'm glad you said that because I don't think everyone knows when they've stayed too long. I don't think everyone has that, you know, that feedback mechanism where they sort of pick up on it. Some people just don't, they don't feel it the same as most. So let me put it this way. If you're a host, how do you let someone know that's, you know, you've maybe enjoyed a couple of days that the prawn bucket's starting to smell? (laughs) Well... No problem, I can tell them. <laughs> we actually, the couple having the divorce, we did actually ask them to leave. Um, but you can always drop little hints like, gosh, is it Thursday already? We have to go away tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I think when the host stops saying, what would you like to do with us tomorrow? Or let's go to something tomorrow. Let's go for a ride tomorrow or something. When they stop saying that, maybe that's a hint. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's fair. 
We get people to stay with us, and you know we've had some people who've who've stayed longer than we thought they were going to, and in the end, I've just said to them, right, okay, you know, what are you guys plans? Um, what are you up to next? Where are you heading to next? When are you thinking about moving on, and all that sort of stuff, and just done it in normal conversation. It doesn't have to be confrontational, and because as I think it was Grant just said just now, sometimes people just don't realise um, that they're overstaying their welcome. So just treat them as adults and human beings, and talk about it. Um, and normally it's absolutely fine. Yeah, well, actually, we were thinking about moving on the day after tomorrow. Hey, fantastic. And then the conversation goes, and it, it just works. Mm, I'm not very good at doing that. I tend to endure it and just retreat to the shed, and I don't go to the supermarket, so there's nothing left in the fridge. <laughs> just make mine and their life so uncomfortable. And then you bitch about it afterwards. Yeah, on the radio. <laughs> You'll never have another guest, I, I Graham. I stop short of naming names. <laughs> Go on, one name, one name. Go. <laughs> hey, Jim, can you can you do can you do us um, a favour at some stage? Take a photograph of the audience so when you make the show go live, we can actually see a picture of everybody. <laughs> Try and take a picture of it when, you, when yeah. somebody said something completely ridiculous so that we can get there. They said, what expressions? Yeah, and don't just Photoshop Lee in it 50 times to make it look like a big audience. <laughs> right, now, right now, as I speak... I'm, I'm getting a little video of the entire audience here. The audio will be crap on it because it's in a waterproof case. But they are wave. They're real people. They're really moving people. Are you having a good Not time? Not really moving, but... All right. <laughs> I could say if they could move, they'd go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, they could, you can all leave now. It's okay. We got our shot. Anyway, cool. so on to the next one. We uh, had on here pannier tools. Only three, if you could only take three tools with you on a two-month trip... What would they be and why? That's an easy one. Sure, so, I wouldn't. <laughs> Grant's first. Speaking as a former mechanic, three tools? Are you nuts? <laughs> That's not possible. But if I... <laughs> well, hang on. No, a, t- a tool could be like, like your tire irons. Let's count those as one tool. Okay, a tire changing set is okay. one, absolutely, because you need to be able to patch your tires. Right. pair of vice grips couple of screwdrivers. Yeah, that'll probably do it. Well, you tell how he works, can't you? <laughs> Vice grips. But if I had the choice, I would take a lot more than three. You should see my toolkit. My toolkit's plural, sorry. Graham? Oh, three tools is really difficult. I suppose I'd have Grant's tire changing kit, the bike engine rebuild kit, and then a Swiss Army knife. Sorry, we forgot. Graham writes a KLR. <laughs> You're cheating, and you know damn well. Um, Definitely, I, I must admit, I can normally get away with one tire lever. If, if, but we're allowed to count that as one. So, the tire levers, you're going to have that. Um, I mean, you've got to have. I mean, you need a 10 mil spanner, but you're going to need a 17 mil as well. So that's that's it. That's my three wishes, isn't it? I've run out. Okay, okay. So, maybe maybe there's a flaw um, in this question. Maybe maybe three tools is is just a little <laughs> too. Narrow, okay. So let me let me just widen it up a little bit. If we could no, no, say, no, that's all right. I'm you, happy with that. Oh, you're good I'm with this. Oh, let's hear it. Oh, okay. well, because Graham couldn't do it, obviously. So yeah. why, why don't we move over to Brian? <laughs> yeah, well, I agree with Grant. Tire changing, a leather man tool, which is a bit of everything, and a wife that can hitchhike. 
Wow, that's that's really good. Don't, don't they cost a lot though to feed and that? They cost a lot. I suppose they can be really expensive. Yeah, you need to get one that pays their own way. You can get those spot devices too, and, and you just press the button. You don't have to feed them. Good point. And the rescue crew will come and get you, carry you out. But they could be temperamental too. Hello, I can hear you. You know. <laughs> but you can't reach me. <laughs> One day, day she will. One day least expect Send me a verbal slap. And she's staying longer than three days. <laughs> you may go into the shed, but you will not be able to hide from me. <laughs> Look on the inside. <laughs> Sam, <laughs> you must have three tools. I, I, I got this. Okay, well, I mean, I think I got this completely wrong. I, I started off my list with a corkscrew and a tin opener. That's where the peg was clothesline and you had my perfect key. <laughs> no, but seriously, I also went with mole grips, um, tire levers, but I also went with um, a multi-socket. Do you remember me talking about um, a gator grip? Um, three or four shows back because yes, this thing yeah. goes from seven to 19 millimeters and that's just one tool you know it's a it's a great bit of kit so i would take those um those three things hang on a second are you sponsored by this gator grip no no i just, really <laughs> want this just want to be sure because the second time i heard about it and, and they and they want to sponsor me then um, i'd be quite happy for that no <laughs> That was a pitch. All right, maybe I'll just rewind. We'll go back to the corkscrew and the tin. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we have, uh, we, we've sort of wrapped that. We've got one more thing that we want to talk about on this episode, but we were also going to do um, an open mic and um, just see if anybody had any questions for these guys in particular. So we've got Sam Maticom, Graham Field, Shirley Hardy Ricks, and Brian Ricks, um, obviously connected with us right now. And of, of course, Grant Johnson here. So do you guys have any questions that you wanted to ask of these people? Anything we've talked about? Go ahead. Come on up. So I'm going to relay again because for some reason the mic works for here and recording, but it doesn't work to these guys on the internet. Okay, no problem. My question was just uh, how you catalog all your documentation uh, before you leave for an extended trip for uh, border crossings, um, insurance, things like that. Oh, good question. What's your name? Matt. Matt? Yeah. So Matt's asking how you catalog all your paperwork for your trip. How do you keep organized? I'm not going to start with Graham. That's just a waste of time, I think. I, I'm going to go over <laughs> I'm gonna go over to Brian and, and start with him. Brian? Oh, cataloging. Um, look, when we do our trips, we sort of try and work out the countries that we're going to, like the last trip was through um, Russia, um, getting the visas, you know, trying to work out when we're going to get the visas. So we try and work it out by date, roughly, or month, and go that way. Um, that's the best that I can say. What about you, Cheryl? And when I think the question may also have related to how we keep everything organised while we're travelling, like the actual physical bits of paper. Yeah. We always have a Ziploc waterproof bag um, with stuff we're not going to need every day will be in a pannier and the things that we're going to need to show at borders like our passports and um, when you're travelling in South America, your yellow fever certificate, things like that, handy in the tank bag, but everything always in um, Ziploc waterproof bags just to keep everything fresh. 
Does that sort of answer what you were asking, Matt? Yeah, definitely the, the you know, month by month through it's kind of planned that way so that it's... So, so by like date, you, yeah. You're not necessarily carrying it all, I guess, because you can have a few months to plan for that next set of documentation, so... Well, yeah, we... Um, I mean, always you're going to have your passport, which has got all your visas and everything in it, your um, insurance for the bike, which your your green card or whatever, you're going to have to keep with you all the time, and your, and your health certificate, your registration papers, we keep all them in one place safe, but the other stuff that we're going to need further down the trip, uh, yeah, we keep that in a separate place in some kind of order, but I have to say sometimes that order gets pretty chaotic and... Every now and again, yeah, we have a clean out and realise what we don't need anymore and we'll either throw it out or post it home. You know, paperwork that's out of date or that sort of yeah. stuff. Otherwise, you can be, start to become a mobile filing cabinet. Yeah, but you do need, you do yeah, need to sure. have your, your, um, your original registration lab, um, paperwork, paperwork so to prove you're the owner of the motorcycle. At most borders um, everywhere else uh, in the world that I've been to, and uh, it really surprised me when Charlie and you didn't have their original um, documentation when they got to their first border, but um, that's, that's a given. Um, and then, as Cheryl said, uh, by month or where you're travelling, um, you just go through it like that. What do I need to cross this border? As she said, the yellow fever certificate is very important in South America. So you have that with, um, in those days we travel with Kano, um, with your Kano and stuff like that. But Ziploc bags are very, very important because if they get wet, um, you can't replace them readily. Yeah, we keep it really simple. We basically do a little bit of what Brian and Shirley do. Two bags. One is the uh, originals of a lot of stuff, but the important stuff that you're going to need at every border crossing is all in one bag. Trying to keep organized for the next country and the next country by date or anything like that, way too complicated. Put it all in one open folder. But the day before you get to the border, you just go through that, make sure you've got the right stuff, uh, throw out anything that's outdated or no longer necessary, make sure you've got enough copies, good enough. Keep it simple. Don't try and get too complicated and too organized. Uh, I, I can imagine a, a lovely daytimer folder that's all organized and beautiful. The thing weighs a ton, forget it. Just the dividers are too heavy. I'm trying to keep my weight down, so one waterproof... Um, I don't like Ziplocs for something that's as important as paperwork. I'll go for an Ortlieb Zip Seal bag, something that's really seriously waterproof and heavy duty. But I think also photographing everything and emailing to yourself. You're quite yes. Oh, that's a must. If the happens, you get lost, mugs, stolen, whatever. If you don't know your passport number off by heart, if you don't know your registration serial number off by heart, at least if you've got an email to yourself, you can print off the photocopies. It's something. It's something to go with. So yeah. photographing everything and emailing to yourself is so simple and free and easy to do, and it's wonderful to have that as a backup. Yep, yeah, that's, that's an automatic true. these so, days. I totally agree with Graham on that. I mean, we carry at least two sets of, of copies, you know, the originals and a set of copies. Um, in, funnily enough, Grant's hit the nail right on the head there with the Ortlieb bags. They're just superb. They're tough as nuts. Um, but we'll carry those in separate panniers. So if one pannier gets broken into or starts leaking, whatever, then there's less chance. But other than that, we'll just try and keep it simple. Um, but as we're going towards borders, then we'll get shed loads of photocopies because you always need lots of photocopies of everything as you get towards a border. Yeah, four or five copies of everything is not too few. Um, I've, I know of mm. borders where people have been asked for like 10 copies. And, oh, the photocopier, that's in town. You have to go into town to this particular person who just happens to be my cousin and pay them a dollar a photocopy. 
and bring it all back. And then you know that it all just ends up in the bin anyway. Oh, and I've got another little top tip as well. You can never have enough passport photographs for visas and various yep. things. So when yeah. you get your little, your initial little pack of four passport photographs, you can put them on your scanner and print them on photographic paper and double them to eight. Then you can cut those and double it to 16. It's a really good way of only paying for one set of passport photos and having 16 passport photos because you do get through them really quick and they don't need to be the super best quality because quite often they're just for, I don't know, just for some bureaucratic reason. So uh, that's a handy little uh, top tip that I discovered. Yeah, and when you're talking about emailing them to yourself, it has to be uh, like a, an email system that keeps your email online, which most of them are nowadays, but some is pop email where it um, deletes the email once you've downloaded it. But anybody on Yahoo or, well, I don't know, does anybody use Yahoo anymore? But Google or Gmail or rather, or something like that, that stores it online and then you can, you can go and access those. But it's important to realize that you, you don't want to do it to your company server or something that is a, a pop setup where it may not keep that copy on the server. Yeah, you should always have a... What's wrong with a, Yahoo? God, first of all, you pick on... <laughs> we know that's Yahoo what you use, Graham. You, you're, you're like the only person I know that uses Yahoo Mail. You know, it's, it's, it's like uh, MySpace. We've talked about that before. It's like the big empty building. There's a caretaker maybe walking around mopping rooms, but that's the same as Yahoo. Yeah, the other thing oh, was... that's uh, why I've got so much storage space. <laughs> that's right. You've got three quarters of, of the world's population no longer using Yahoo, so you've got lots of room. No, the other yeah. thing to do, even if you have a pop mail server, like obviously I've got the Horizons Unlimited server and I can store stuff there, but for most people, a Gmail account as well as your personal account for whatever, a pop server, you can store stuff in various folders. There's lo they all have places to store stuff, not just in a mailbox or in a mail folder, which may end up six months later, it's so far down you'll never find it anyway. There's always a storage place to put things. OneDrive and what about just, all the rest of them have lots. What about just photographing it with your phone and leaving it in the photo section on your phone? You can do that. That works. And you can also then just mail it to yourself again uh, or to a internet cafe and they can print it from there for you. Yeah. I think the neat thing about doing it by your email though is that it's, it's stored away from you. So if you lost everything, you just go somewhere and you check into your email, you log in and you can print it off. So it's probably a huge advantage of that, and it's free. You should, you should keep copies, electronic copies of all your stuff at home with a responsible adult. Yes. So if everything does turn pear-shaped, uh, read for this, don't leave it at Graham's place. But, um, I, I don't know. You that's did an say responsible adult. We figured that out. <laughs> that's an oxymoron, a responsible adult. I, I don't go for that. I heard him stickering. But if you've got copies of everything at home, people can then email it to you in an emergency. So, yep, lots of copies. That's the main thing. Anyone else with questions here? Come on up. This is kind of down the same vein, but the question is: What do you do for security when you're you've got driver's licenses, passports, things that you have to keep? Is it secure enough in a pannier? Do you keep it on yourself? So what, what's your name? Oh, my name is Doug. Doug. So Doug's asking about security, what to do with those important things like your passport, um, your driver's license, uh, your corkscrew, things like that that you don't want to lose. <laughs> you guys can relate to that, can't you? I mean the corkscrew. <laughs> I don't know where mine is. Uh, well, the 
Firstly, the, fir the thing that's instantly accessible is my fake wallet, which has photocopies of things like driver's license and that. So if there is a corrupt cop or a bandit or something, the things that go missing aren't the genuine ones. However, the, the things that, the, like Grant was saying that you need to get out all the time, like your passport and your driver's license and insurance, they're, for me, they're in the tank bag or the tank box. And that, when I stop at a hotel or restaurant or anything, that is the first thing that comes off the bike. It's the last thing that goes back on the bike. So that is the thing that, and because it's also the tank box, it's right in front of me. It was always in my view. I will never not lose, lose my tank box and not know it. It's, it's right there. You know, I've heard of people who have lost panniers uh, inadvertently because it, it got knocked and then sometime down the highway they realise it's gone. Obviously, you're going to have things of value in the panniers, but the most valuable thing, I think, is your passport. That, and it, You can keep it in a, body, in a little body belt and everything, but then it's prone to sweat and getting wet and everything. But as long as I think visually or you, you, it's there, and for me the tank bag or the tank box right in front is, is the thing that you guard above everything else so that's what i do yeah yeah that i agree with you there mate um i actually keep our passports on me but i put them in a ziploc bag i love ziploc bags so you know it lips okay but they're pretty heavy but uh, i keep that on me uh on the inside pocket of my jacket all the time um, you know i've heard of people those uh, magnetic tag bags i've heard of people having them um ripped off their bike as they're sitting in a set of traffic lights and people running off through the crowd. So, um, you know, I know you've got a big box on your bike, mate, but uh, uh, I, I, I would just uh, keep all that sort of stuff with you as much as you can. Um, you know, you can't know you can replace. A lot of things you can replace. Your passport's a little bit more difficult. They're the main things that I keep. Passport, registration, driver's licence on me. Yeah, I keep mine on me too. Susan and I both have uh, pockets in our trousers, and that's where the passport lives when we're traveling to a long distance. That, that, I mean, leaving it in your jacket is fine, but I've been known to take my jacket off occasionally, especially in a restaurant, and then wander off to the washroom. Might not be there when you get back. So if it's in my trousers, those I don't generally take off in public. Well, for Brian, well, that's a little a different, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I seem to remember, Grant, you telling us how you did take them off because you yeah. wore cycle shorts underneath. That's true, <laughs> I do. You beat me to it. That's exactly what I was going to say. He does take them off. I do. You're right. You're right. I, I'm sorry. I'm just sitting there waiting for you. Grant, you're not going to get away with this one. You're not going to get away with this one, Grant. Well, okay. I'll say, yeah, you'll usually take my trousers off in public. Less chance, I guess, would be it. Yeah. Sam? Um, I carry my passport and any other um, really important documents in a waterproof bag in a, a pouch, a leather pouch on my hip. Um, it's always with me. I'm never going to put it down um, unless I'm taking my trousers off, which Grant will just um, um, agree with. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm not going to hang my bag on the back of a chair or, or anything else like that. Um, it's just always there, and it's, it's thick enough leather that it's slash-proof. Um, somebody's going to have a hard time to take it. What about when you're in a hotel and you're going sightseeing or you're going to the beach mm. or whatever? What do you do with your passports and stuff then? I stash mine in the hotel. I don't try, generally take it with me. Did you get that? So you stash, it, you stash it in the room, Grant, and just hide it. Yeah, I don't want to carry it around with me because that's the time when the things are going to be most likely to yeah, go exactly. missing. And if somebody is looking for stuff in your hotel, 
the, the passport isn't something they're going to steal. They're looking for valuables. They're looking for something that they can sell, like a camera or stuff. And that's what I take with me, and I leave the passport behind. Yeah, look, Vietnam's I, 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 a bit problematical. They actually take your passport when you uh, book into a hotel. Um, yeah, that's you're, too. You're under control there a lot. So you feel a bit naked without it, to be quite honest with you. It is a strange feeling, isn't it? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, most places they'll take it for a few minutes just to check things out. But in Vietnam, you have to hand it over and the police come round and actually check and then you'll get it given back to you. But um, I mean, Birgit and I always take um, the strongest of our panniers off the bikes and with cable locks, we'll lock those to the bed frame um, and we'll put things like passports, that sort of thing, inside that. So it's like our own mini safe because most thefts from hotel rooms, they tend to be opportunist thieves. Um, and if you leave stuff lying around, then people will nab things. But um, we, we feel a bit safer by doing that. But there are some countries that you go to where you have to have your passport with you all the time. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to walk around without it. So you just yeah. find that out as you go. Hang on one second. Just a question from the audience again. Actually, it was a, just what was said uh, in the States we were traveling, left our passports in Tucson, went traveling near the border, and Homeland Security said, you're not allowed, you're, you are illegal without having that passport. So, On you. you know, yeah, so you have to carry it in most countries, I would assume, mm. if you're a non-resident. Yeah, he was just saying that um, in the U.S., he was told that he has to carry his passport with him as he's wandering around. Otherwise, um, it's against the law. Uh, as a Canadian. Yeah, as a Canadian. Uh, I've been told that. That's the land of the free for you. <laughs> you don't even have a passport right now do you graham no no I don't. because your mom, mom does your washing <laughs> i mean i mean i guess she, you arrived and you were so dirty your mom decided to wash your pants and she washed your passport yeah jim you've been waiting to say that haven't you since the last interview <laughs> it just popped into my mind now i'm thinking about how dirty you were i was thinking no he washes his clothes he visits his mom <laughs> yeah, no, my passport got washed. I spent 36 hours at my mum's house and she took it upon herself to wash me trousers and my passport was in the hip pocket. And when she hung them on the line upside down, she said, oh, this dropped out of the pocket, dear. <laughs> my passport. <laughs> it's okay, it was getting full up anyway. I needed some clean pages. So, so now my passport somewhere <laughs> Pages. <laughs> and the passport... <laughs> But now my passport is somewhere between Bulgaria and Her Majesty's Passport Office in London, where I'm waiting to get a new one. And uh, so, yeah, I'm currently without a passport. So here I am giving advice about travel. And you're giving advice about security of important documents. And yours has been watched. Don't give them to your mum. <laughs> hey, isn't your mum there visiting you right now? No, no, because, uh, no, she's not, because I have to pick her up, and I haven't got a passport. Oh, right, that was it. <laughs> does, does your mom go on Skype? Does she have a, a Skype address? Yeah. Because I would love to call her yes. up and get her on this call. I bet you would. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That, that could be a, a whole different show. <laughs> oh, don't, yeah, don't ask her what she's wearing like you do me. <laughs> oh. What are you wearing anyway, Graham? Actually, very little. It's got very hot in here, and I didn't turn the fan on because of the background noise. So we really don't want to know what you're wearing, right? <laughs> Anybody else with any questions? Okay, so um, we go on to... 
Oh, Graham's going to love this because this is sort of a, a, a takeover, a drag over from the last episode of Raw because, well, I have to admit, I hijacked Graham's suggestion. He, he mentioned about a pannier lunch. I think I took that pannier lunch and ran it into, I don't know, what we were packing for food. So I apologize, Graham, and I brought it back just for you so you can tell us what is your favorite pannier lunch? And we'll go around and everybody will give their favorite simple pannier lunch. Graham, do you want to tell us what a pannier lunch is to begin with? Well, all it was, um, and I'm not, I'm not blaming you for hijacking it at all. It was... It's not what the email was, said. It was just a, no, it was your apology. <laughs> <laughs> it was your apology, which I accepted. Right. That was it. Sorry, I had trouble remembering which way it went. I mean, always be nice to the person who edits your what you say as well. <laughs> anyway, the point was, um, when you stop at the side of the road, not for your, for your main course, not for your dinner, but for a, for a little roadside snack, what I tend to always have is some bread, and the staler the better because it doesn't crush, and uh, usually some tomatoes, usually some cheese, and once you get east of well Germany and further east, um, there's always sort of Polish-style sausages, which is, doesn't do your breath a lot of favours, but is actually quite yummy. So bite of sausage, bite of cheese, bit of tomato, bit of bread, and there my that's my instant pannier roadside snack, my little lunchtime daytime snack, which is fine. I really like it, but I couldn't help but think that uh, other people have some really good things that they buy which are not the, the last longer than three-day prawns and, uh, <laughs> and just uh, is yummy, travels well and readily available and, and, and as a bonus, possibly nutritious as well. So I just want to see what other people use to eat. So I think the sensible thing here is to go to Sam. <laughs> that would be All right. Well, actually, um, I, I'm, I'm a real fan of f fresh food, so I'll normally take one dead rat or a squirrel or one bat or a badger or a rabbit, you know, anything that's roadkill. And if it's still warm, then it's probably okay. If it smells fine, then that's perfect. And you just make yourself a little barbie by the side of the road, and there you go, that's lunch. It's great. What do you do um, if you can't you barbecue? Well, I just stick it on the cylinders of um, my BMW motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to say, I'm sure glad I went to Sam next. I mean, it's just, it was an ideal answer. <laughs> no, seriously, Jim, um, Graham's um, description is absolutely perfect because you can find bread and cheese and tomatoes. And um, I don't know about the Polish sausage, but you can find bread and cheese and tomatoes just about everywhere you go. Um, and the local varieties of breads and cheeses and things like that mean that you never get bored of it. And it's just there and you can buy little bits as you go along. So it is always fresh. And wow, some of the best tomatoes, huge um, beef tomatoes that you can pick up in, in countries in Africa, for example. And, um, you know, these just think they're massive and just full of flavor because they've literally just come off the plant and ended up by the side of the road. And you pick it up as you go. Yeah, great. Love it. I mean, Birgit and I always carry um, a big bag of peanuts and, and raisins as well because um, that's, that's pretty useful and it's, it's good quality emergency food rations. We used to carry packets of biscuits as emergency rations. But the trouble was, Birgit kept on having emergencies when I wasn't looking. And so when we didn't have a genuine emergency, <laughs> we decided to feel the difference was we'd have biscuits left. 
Right. Well, I, I can understand that. Hang on. We have somebody from the audience with a question. What's your oh, name? I was just going to say, my one of mine would be fresh bread, not the stale bread. But I like uh, fruit, so carry fruit. But a banana cut in half with a bit of peanut butter on a piece of bread, to me, is goes a long t- way. takes care of my, my yep. requirement for a bit of sweetness with my lunch. Yep. Right. What's Good your one. name? Bert. Bert. Okay. So what do you got, Shirley? Bananas, I always think of. What do you think of? Jim, Jim, while Shirley's thinking of bananas, then. Oh, I, th- I didn't realize you'd ask me what I wanted. Sorry. That's okay. Let's hear what Sam had to say here first. Well, I was just going to say about bananas because um, somebody, um, was it Bert in the audience mentioned bananas? Um, I always think about um, bananas as being um, the best fast food you can get on the road because, hey, they're healthy, they're, they're ready-wrapped, they're instant eats and um, full of the goodness that you need out there. And, of course, they're clean. Perfect. But they don't travel very well, do they? No, they no, but don't. You're not supposed to travel with them. You're supposed to eat them. <laughs> well, is that where he's been going wrong? Do you know wrong? what you're all forgetting, though, all you northern hemisphere people? What's you that? should never go without Vegemite. Oh, yes. Vegemite. <laughs> we always travel with Vegemite, and you can put it on bread or biscuits. It's nutritious, it's tasty, and it's a little bit of home that's always there. Well, okay, so true. hang on. So Surely for those who... Not my home. <laughs> hang on a second. For those who don't know what Vegemite is, it's a... Now, correct me if I'm wrong. It's a, it's a mixture of oil and tree bark and, and sand. Is, is, it, is there sand in there? Sorry? There's no sand in Vegemite. No. Well, but the first two are right. See, so it's oil and it's tree bark. I've got the first two right. <laughs> it looks like actual grease, but it's full of vitamin B. Now, look, um, in Australia, um, there's an old saying about uh, a drover's breakfast. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but uh, you might have to edit this one. Uh, no, Jim. don't, 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 it's, uh, a drover's, don't. A drover's breakfast is a, a spit, a piss, and a look around. That's it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Come on, Shirley, aren't you sitting beside him? Smack him on. I tried to stop him, but he was just he was just on a roll and there was um, going to be no, no stopping him. I, I like, uh, you're all talking about fresh fruit, and that's great if you can carry it, but when you're packing and you're packing tight when you're travelling like we do with two of us, that's pretty damn hard unless you, you buy it and then you eat it the same day. Um, I like to carry tins of tuna, um, you know, those little tins you can get. You can eat them with anything. All you need is a spoon. And um, I agree with um, Graham about cheese, biscuits, or stale bread, or bread of any description. Yeah, that's plenty. You'll always find food somewhere, but you really only need um, um, stuff for emergencies or um, if you want to go wild and uh, take stuff with you. That's what we do. Brian, um, can I conjure up an image that, that follows on from um, what Shirley just was describing with Vegemite? I wandered onto the camping site this morning and I was just having a, um, a potter around and looking at the different bikes and stuff like that. And I came across Ken and Carol Duval. She so, will uh, have Vegemite. She will oh, have no. Vegemite. And guess what they want? Vegemite toast. Their top box, his little stove, his yep. toaster... They were making yep. toast and spreading it with Vegemite. And yes. of course, yep. they were collecting some wonderful 
looks of people walking past. <laughs> she stole Vegemite off us. We met them. We met them in Banal in uh, in Russia last year, and I knew that they'd run out of Vegemite. So I rationed my own Vegemite to make sure we could have Vegemite toast together for breakfast in Siberia. Wow, Australians helping Australians. That's, That's just what... great. What a great story. And after five years living in Australia, I still can't stand the stuff. <laughs> it's terrible. It tastes about <laughs> like it looks. I think you have to be you raised know, on it from know, birth. You have, you, have, you have to be raised on Vegemite from childhood. It's not something you can take on as an adult. We, we have a mix in our family too. We have a pommy, a pommy that's uh, married one of our, our girls over here, and he's trying to raise his kids on Marmite. It's just not a happening thing. It's got to be Vegemite. <laughs> well, no, no, I beg to differ. You, but I, you do have to be raised as a kid. The, the amount of times over uh, over when I've travelled and people said, oh, what's that Marmite? Can I try it? Well, you're not going to like it. I know you're not going to like it. I've got a limited quantity. And no, you can't bloody try it. <laughs> <laughs> Shirley, tell the story yeah. about Opar in Germany. We were staying with some friends in Germany and uh, the father was eating for breakfast on black bread raw minced pork and raw onion. And I brought down my Vegemite and uh, he wanted to taste it. So he put some on a piece of bread, bit into it and then spat it across the table. <laughs> and I thought, this is coming from a man who's eating raw meat and raw onion for breakfast. Heathens, absolute heathens. Uh, I'm on your team, Graham. It's just not right. <laughs> I also like your theory that don't let them try it because they won't like it and they are just they won't waste like it your you supply. Waste it. it is a waste. I mean, I haven't met a nationality. I mean, you can swap it with New Zealanders, with Kiwis and Aussies, you can swap your Marmite Vegemite thing because there is a, although you will always protest that your nation's, your nation's is best, you can at least swap. But any, the rest of the world, forget it. I'm sorry, the rest of the world, but you just don't know what you're missing. Oh, yes, we hey, do. He's, he's we really idea. know what we're missing. Trust me, I've tried them both. No chance. <laughs> well, when we get people from other other nations that stay too long in our house, we'll serve up Vegemite for breakfast. That'll get rid of it. <laughs> Very quickly. <laughs> yeah, because it's that, so that sounds like some excellent idea. Did you have a patty or lunch? Yeah. Okay, I'll go ahead with mine. Uh, our usual is we start off with GORP. And for those who don't know what GORP is, it's good old reliable peanuts. Peanuts and Smarties, I'm, I'm a big Smarties fan, Susan's less so, but bits of dried fruit, uh, bits of coconut, anything at all that you can just put your hand in, grab a handful, and munch away. Um, I use that as my standard trail hiking food. Uh, I'll live on that stuff for days. And um, Susan insists on bringing along bread and cheese, and sometimes if she can find it, Nutella. And um, it's always some fresh fruit. Have to have some fresh fruit for lunch. That's important. But the bread is whatever heavy, dark, solid bread we can find is the best. And if it crushes, it's, Graham, sorry, but crushed is actually good. It packs better that way. And it still tastes the same. Yeah, but it makes a, makes it's, a lousy sandwich. Ah, and it's also a perfectly good sandwich. <laughs> and stale bread stale doesn't... Stale bread up. You can put it underneath your side stand if you're on soft bread. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can eat it. <laughs> you probably sent us out yeah, here with nothing but stale bread. bread and water, us convicts out here in Australia. So we live on the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we wrap things up, we'll give one more chance. Any for anyone from the audience have any questions for these guys and lady? 
No? I think we're going to wrap it up. I, I guess we're going to have um, our after show party somewhere. And um, where's that going to be? I think it should be party in the cup. Where? I think we should have it with uh, with Matt and Lee and Doug and Bert because they bother to sit and listen to this bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> now, we'll have to have the after party here in Nacusp. Beautiful downtown Nacusp, British Columbia. Well, there you go. We'll have the, the sun, after party the here. The sun's up here, so um, sure and I'll have to put our clothes on and get out of bed. Yeah, well, I'm Please glad. do. <laughs> yes, but I was going to mention you left your video on that entire time, but anyway... <laughs> I have it recorded and I'll send it to you afterwards. Jim, Bergie very carefully taped over um, the camera online. She said, they're not going to look at you after you've been spending all day standing on your feet talking to people and then you're drinking whiskey. Okay, exactly the wrong impression. Very wise girl, that one. Absolutely. After show party in the cusp of British Columbia. Come on over here, you guys. We'll meet you here and we'll put another shrimp on the barbie. And the writing is fantastic. Okay, cheers now. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. That about wraps things up for this month on ARR Raw. But before you go, I want to ask you if you consider dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and clicking on the donate button to help support the show. Anything $10 or more will get you a sticker sent back at you in the mail, our way of showing our appreciation to you for helping out the show. Special thanks for this show to our host, Grant and Susan Johnson, that uh, had asked us oh, almost a year ago to come to the Hub Meet and record in front of a live audience, and it's been a lot of fun. I tell you, if you haven't been to a Hub Meet, then you need to go. You can find out what the next one is in your area, or maybe not even your area. You can travel a distance to go to it. Get out there, learn, and have fun. Really fun event. Thanks to our co-host, Graham Field. Uh, Graham has some great adventure motorcycle books out there. You can get his books at www.gramfield.co.uk. Sam Manicom, also an author of some amazing adventure books for motorcyclists. You can find his books at sam-manicom.com. And Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks, who also have books out available. And you can find their books at aussiesoverland.com.au. And of course, Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for adventure motorcycling and the community adventure motorcycling. You can check out all the events they put on at www.horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name's Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next month. I almost forgot, we've got a Facebook page for ARR Raw, so if you haven't already, drop by and give us a like.